Hesedim is a series of reflection, usually reflecting on an issue in the society in the light of the words of scripture. You're welcome to join us each time and to send your questions or comments by way of a voice note. Look forward to hearing you and speaking with you. We are continuing our reflections on the anatomy of power today. Our interest in the subject is not a mere academic interest. And when we speak about power, we are not speaking about something abstract, but something that bears upon the lives and reality of people. We ask ourselves, how come the same people who live on marginal lands on the gully banks and can't get titles for land are the same ones that nanny our children take out our trash they are the service providers that can't work from home yet they are the ones with the comorbidity of diabetes hypertension heart ailment they have no in health insurance and are the victims of the pandemic that suffer the severest consequences they are the ones from among whom often spring at least from the communities where they live the violence producers as well as they are the majority victims of violence that come from among them yet they are the ones whose children become our doctors our lawyers our overachievers they produce our athletes our artists the geniuses our heroes and heroines and yet they are the ones whose rights are first to be taken away in our SOEs and in our DRMAs. They are detained, hunger is imposed on them, and their dignity trampled upon. Side by side with them in the same community, in the same society, are a set of people who always get the prime real estate. They always get the bricks the tax breaks and they are the ones for mm. whom the system works don't care which party wins at the poll they are always in power they control the narratives that make right wrong and wrong right that make lie the truth and turn the truth into a lie they get away with things their connection with wrongdoing is of hardly ever exposed they live high off the hog. We cannot even get a conversation about these things going, let alone getting them to change. There is a creeping authoritarianism as those with power arrogate more power to themselves and they are kept insulated by clever public relations gambit. Power is about who lives and who dies. There, these are the matters in the forefront of our minds when we come to talk about how power is and what power does. The background against which the writer of Revelation is writing in our text in Revelation 18, the fall of Babylon, is that the writer is writing to an audience that is in the midst of an environment where power 
was acting with impunity, unchecked, unrivaled, unaccountable, and untrammeled. The powerful were doing anything they want, getting anything they want, and getting away with anything they wanted to. They had the power of the narrative. Truth was on the scaffold and wrong on the throne. The writer portrays the end of this Babylon with its power of intimidation and its power of seduction. The end of Babylon was sudden, precipitous, tragic, mm -hmm. and irreversible. In so doing, the writer calls attention to the fact that power is deluded about its own demise and its own vulnerability, and that power makes people into objects, not subjects, commodities, not agents. We must now decide what we are going to do about power. In guiding us to do to, as to what to do about power, the writer says, come out of her, my people so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. These words smack of the words of the angel of the Lord to Lot, Abraham's nephew, at the time of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We recall that Lot and his family were rescued from Sodom and placed in Zoar, but what do these instructions mean when what we are dealing with is a world power, an empire from which there is nowhere to run to and nowhere to hide? Clearly, what the writer has in mind is not merely creating physical distance between us and the forces of power, but he has in mind something much more profound. I suggest the following three things that we ought to do in response to these words, come out of her, my people. First, it calls for us to construct a separate identity for ourselves in relation to the behavior of power. We are people that are mindful that God has not left the world to the mercy of its rulers to do as they please. Therefore, when they abuse power, history is not their friend. It catches up with you. Knowing this, God's people construct a different trajectory for themselves by constructing a separate identity. The words my people imply that, that separate and different identity based on different systems of value, insight, and perspective. One of the ways we show that we that separation and different difference is the value we place on people. In a word, God's people prefer people to things. People are not things to be used, refused, or discarded. They are neighbors, brothers, sisters, fellow human beings whose dignity you safeguard and protect and with whom you build lasting relationships. Another value is that we prefer right to might. We do not merely bully our way or trample upon the weak and powerless and those who have no one to speak for them or to stand up for them. We want to do what is right for them, nothing less than what we want for ourselves. And we insist on living in a world 
where human dignity is safeguarded. We want truth and honor and decency to characterize our world. God's people insist on the truth, on knowing the truth, on telling the truth, and demanding to be told the truth. They say that figures do not lie, but liars figure. When power wants to have its way, it manipulates the numbers. We should demand of those who lead us, and they should know us by this. Tell us the truth, give us the data, let the data be the foundation of our actions and our decisions. These days, we know the anxiety of the powerful mm. and of profit to get going, their great push to open the economy, and they must. But some believe that because those who die from the pandemic will not be from among them and their kind, that it is okay for some people to die. But sometimes the truth is terribly inconvenient. Let us have the data and we will judge for ourselves. God's people must know it is not Caesar that sets us free. It is the truth that sets us free. We must resist those forces that make people more gullible, more manipulable, and more controllable by teaching them to rely on superstition and to swallow down a diet of conspiracies. Our separate identity must be marked out by the fact that we are people with discernment who make up our own minds and are not easily fooled. We must be known by the value we place on people and we place on what is right and we place on what is true. God's people must be those who learn how to postpone gratification. They must not live belly first. They must live with the maxim. A person must not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God's God. God's people must seek first God's righteousness and God's justice. To maintain a separate identity does not mean that we have to be a majority. It does not mean that we have to be dominant in numbers or in power or in the network that you have. You can be quite content to be in the minority. You must, however, be deeply committed and rooted and grounded in your faith in God, in your values, in your ideals, and in your principles. Secondly, because of this separate and different identity, God's people must exercise power as a counter source of power by learning to say no to Babylon. Our foremothers and forefathers were overmatched, but they learned to resist and to build resilience amongst us, their heirs and successors. They have left us a legacy of dissent, a legacy of defiance, like mm. Daniel in the lands in, in Babylon, who purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. He was in the king's service, but he said no to the king's meat. We must learn to say no. This does not mean that we are dissidents. We dissent when we see that our ideals are being compromised. We seek a greater good and we serve a bigger God. So like the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace in the face of idolatrous in the face of the made up in the face of the self-indulgence of power they said we believe our god will deliver us but if not we will not bow to your image O king 
the power to say no is an enormous gift that no one can take from us and we come from a long tradition of those who said no to power like daddy sharp whose day of martyrdom we shall shortly celebrate on labor day who said mm. i would rather die on yonder gallows than live in slavery death before dishonor is our creed there are powerful weapons but none can match the human will we must treasure that gift to say no and respond to the mighty power of tyranny with two simple letters no only you can go along with folly no one can do it for you the power to say no has two tasks to perform one is advocacy and the other is protest advocacy is advocacy for people often who cannot speak up for themselves and for the things that are right and demand action but are being trampled upon and are lying follow protests are the actions we take on behalf of justice for the sake of others in defiance of the misbehavior of power advocacy and protest are essential assets in holding power accountable and in putting a check on power thirdly god's people can respond to power that is deluded about its own vulnerability and that treats people as mere objects by the exercise of patient endurance in the face of unrelenting tyranny and oppression. We cannot struggle against the abuse of power that does anything it wants, gets mm. anything it wants, or gets away with anything it wants to, if we are going to give up in a hurry. Yes, it is true that it has a bulldozer and it can crush us, but that is that does not mean that it is not already crumbling at its foundations. This matter of responding to power is not a sprint, it is a marathon. The call to construct a separate identity and to say no to Babylon and to patiently endure ends with the words, God has judged her Babylon with the judgment she imposed on you. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people, all of whom were slaughtered on earth. I hope you see the irony. Babylon and those who were busy digging the grave of others, for this is Babylon's own graveyard. This is what we call vindication. What a person sows, they shall also reap. Their day is coming. Every dog of him day and every puss him four o'clock. You sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind sorrow may endure for a night but joy comes in the morning you can't plant mango seedling and pick mango the same day patient man give it time to write when second isaiah told the story of the long night of the babylonian exile he declared that god's people had paid double for their sins their hard service was over then he says have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not go tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not 
faint. Let us be patient and let us endure. Nothing but salvation lasts forever. This too shall pass. God does not sleep. God does mm. not forget. And God does not wear pajamas. Amen. Our God, we live in a world of unchecked, unaccountable, and untrammeled power. Help us to construct a different identity that believes that God sits in unrivaled supremacy above the universe. You alone are God, and there is no other. Help us to say no to our Babylons with dissent and defiance and with advocacy and protest. And help us each day as we face our daily struggles to patiently endure, to keep on keeping on through your grace and mercy, in Jesus Christ. Amen. Ah, done it. Trying again. Mm -hmm. Amen. As always, very appreciative of the sharing and the depth of the erudition that undergirds the thoughts that you put forward. And I guess for me, what this week's piece says is really about a certain depth of faith what you shared only makes sense in a context where people have a deeply held faith in a God who is going to save, a God who asks for endurance and struggle knowing that God is the true reality behind everything and that what we're seeing in front of us is not really the real, but that the truth exists Perhaps, for want of a better way of putting it, in the shadows, the truth exists where divinity is at the depths and undermining all that thing to be so strong and powerful and deeply rooted. And that only makes sense for people who have faith. And I hear that and, and I'm, as always, very deeply taken by it. I wondered, though, about your suggestion that a Christian is not a dissident. And I'd love you in some future podcasts to dig a little bit more deeply into that because somehow the identity of the dissident and you have been calling us to a different kind of identity, a minority identity in the space of a larger way of looking at the world that devalues human beings, that uh, relies on the untruth, the, the parody perhaps relies on the imposter in order for it to maintain and to carry forward its power. So I wonder if there might not be the need for a bit of a rethinking of the rejection of the image of the dissident or even perhaps the image of the revolutionary as one that a Christian can embrace because what you're calling the Christian to, the values that you're calling the Christian to, the, 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 the value of advocacy and the value of valuing, revaluing the human person and giving them the true worth that is theirs from being a child of God. And so for me, strikes at a certain level of what it means to be dissident. You're going against the very values that make up the society, the very values that would hold you down, that would hold many down, to hold others that are marginalized in our spaces down. So I wonder if you could think about it. Is it that, is it that you're suggesting that you're rejecting the idea in the dissident of violence 
I would love to hear some more about that from you. Now here's my other thought, and I know what you are trying to do is to present a very balanced perspective. Hold on a minute. Got it. Back again. I was interrupted by the spouse who was listening to the podcast and also listening to my response to it and um, a lot of what he had to say. Obviously, I can't even repeat, but he did pick me up on the point about the dissident and the fact that the dissident is labelled as such by those in power. And he points to the story of Solzhenitsyn, the um, Russian dissident and his placement in the Gulag and so on. And the fact that it was through him that the world learned so much about what was going on. Um, you know, so he made a lot of comments to me like, um, Jesus is a revolutionary, you know, comments like that. He also said of the podcast itself that it was very clever. He um, found your discussion of and the way you slipped in and talked about the notion of authoritarianism and its creeping uh, way in our society um, extremely powerful. And he did go on to give me all kinds of um, examples of how it's playing out itself in our midst right now in a fashion that is very, very troubling. So um, your your insights, without even needing to be explicit, but the way you used the examples in the scriptures to describe what power and the authoritarian nature of power is about um, has great resonances and deep resonances. And the truth of what you're saying also can be seen or highlighted by the fact that this authoritarianism is in place, is growing, and many of us are blind to its activity and its presence. So um, more profound work for you to do as you continue going forward. And you know the dangers of doing a podcast such as this where you can always find it being rejected for being partisan. And that's possibly some of the reactions or responses that can come from that very strong critique that is there of power, particularly in the authoritarian form. I want to go back to one other point that I wanted to make, as I was saying to you before, that I thought I saw you attempting to, to balance as best as you could a vision of Christianity of this remnant Christianity that holds on to a pie in the sky when you die perspective or theology. So you strongly maintain that divinity is in charge and the divinity is in charge of what is really real. And um, in spite of how power seems to array itself against humanity and people, it's not going to last, but we are called upon to be people who endure and to endure faithfully. And you could see a pie-in-the-sky critique coming at that immediately, because then that means that you're going to have to suck up what is there now and just endure, because better will come in the next life. But I also saw you attempt to balance that out by speaking to 
the work that we have to do now in saying no, in working for advocacy, in revaluing the human person, even the ones that are the violence producers are the ones, the same ones that come from the gully bank, yet give us among our greatest heroes and our greatest creatives and people of that nature and of that ilk. And the, the power to say no, obviously, is that ambivalent power, because one wonders if it, it is truly possible to say no in the face of such overwhelming authoritarian power, particularly authoritarian power that requires so much unveiling, requires so much tearing away of the skin that covers over what is really real and so on. So I, I guess what I'm saying, and it's not, it's not a critique, because I think I see a very powerful attempt at balancing the response and the reaction and the responsibility that we have in the face of power, recognizing that power may continue to win and may continue to put us through suffering in this time. But our faith calls us to endure as it calls us to respond. So our faithful endurance is around enduring faithfully even if we seem like we're losing because ultimately victory belongs to the Lord. I thank you as always. Have a blessed week. So Anna, thank you very much. It, it, it's almost like it's worth preaching when you give a critique because you pay such keen attention and you are aware of the subtleties. There's a certain joy in listening to your critique because you interpret me well. I want to kind of say three quick things. One is what, what, always to introduce a, a new conversation. I was uh, out today with my granddaughter and daughter and son-in-law and others, so I couldn't answer before now. One of them is that I think of the person of faith as a citizen who dissents rather than a dissident who becomes a citizen. So always there is a kind of creative criticism because the criticisms are being offered from a point of view of commitment to the common good in the space where it is. It's not by any means an attempt to reject the tradition of dissidence and the fact that one becomes a dissident, not because one sets out to be a dissident, but because one is made such by how power response to this to defiance and to dissent. So I want to say that at the outset. The other thing that I want to say is that I, I think I was really, but the point at which I think the balance, as you put it, was more self-evident is when I said, yes, they have a bulldozer and they can crush you, but they are already crumbling at their foundations. And I'm not so sure that I have an otherworldly view about these things. I think that in evil is the seed of its own destruction. So it, they may be, it may not be apparent to everybody that they are crumbling, that the center cannot hold, but it is there. And that is why the patient endurance is the perspective. Because if you look carefully, you will see, you will see, I, I'm not, you know, clearly there, there is a time for the chariots of fire but in general i'm talking about um 
evil being inherently unsustainable. And the third thing I wanted to say, though, is to invite the advocacy and protest using the ship tomorrow, right? And why I'm so profoundly disappointed with the present incarnation of the church is that it is always asleep, don't care what is happening. So there are two things I'm aware of in which if there were a more robust, robust community of conscience, there would be some activism on our part. The bigger one is the thousands of Jamaicans on the ship that has made its way generously to Jamaican waters, expecting that the 1,000 Jamaicans will stay on board until the 23rd and then disembark. The statement from the Ministry of Health said they are aware of no such thing and they have given no such permission. So they are laying the foundation in which to turn away another 1,000 Jamaicans. I'm going to send you a little um, probe that's done on it, just in case you miss the issues. But what is remarkable is that all of a sudden Jamaicans are being rendered stateless by their government and there is no advocacy, there is no protest and therefore power is allowed to remain unchallenged and untrammeled, right? And that is my point, right? That we, we need to come more closely to the text of Revelation where we anticipate the vindication by saying no to Babylon with our advocacy and our protest.